I was just speaking to a Nigerian friend last night about you know where he thinks the the opportunities lie in Nigeria and you know he just said oh, Pallavi there are 200 million opportunities and I really couldn't think of a better way to to sum it up Hello everyone and thank you for joining us today on season 5 of Declarations. It is a pleasure to everyone listening. Thank you so much. We have such an exciting bunch of guests with us today. Today we're here to talk about Nigeria, specifically anti-corruption efforts and the interplay of those anti-corruption efforts with SARS on the ground. We have some amazing guests with us today and I'm so excited to introduce them to you both. So Dr. Jackie Harvey and Pallavi Roy, thank you both so much for joining us today. And we are also joined by our lovely panelist Nima who is here to provide you with as much insight and opinion as possible. So let me introduce our guest with to you today. So Dr. Jackie Harvey is professor of financial management and director of business research at Newcastle Business School. Coming from the School of Critical Scholars, her evidence-based work challenges existing frameworks and approaches. The overall contribution to the discipline is around two main themes. The primary focus is anti-money laundering policy and asset recovery. The second is the criminal interface with internal organizational structure. This second area has produced work looking at the impact of morality within financial institutions and at the breakdown in interagency working in relation to child protection. Jackie has been invited to speak at a number of very high-profile academic and practitioner conferences in both the UK and Europe. She's on the editorial board for the European Cross-Border Crime Colloquium that brings together researchers from across Europe. Her main teaching interests focus on financial crime, risk and financial market regulation. She undertakes a full range of academic duties including doctoral supervision and examination, external examining and peer review. Prior to becoming an academic, Jackie, whose PhD is in taxation policy, spent 10 years working for a major merchant bank followed by a three-year posting as fiscal policy advisor under the auspices of the British government to the Ministry of Finance in Belize. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jackie. And Pallavi Roy is a lecturer in international economics at the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS. She is currently the research director of the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office's £6 million Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Partnership Consortium, working in Bangladesh, Nigeria, and Tanzania, with responsibility for research on Nigeria, as well as co-principal investigator on a Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office-funded program on inclusive growth in Nepal. Pallavi's research areas include the political economy of growth, governance and corruption, institutional economics, mining and metallic commodities markets, and modern South Asian history. She was part of a multidisciplinary research project funded by the Agence Française de Développement on determinants of growth across developing economies and the need for incorporating a study of country-specific political sediments while framing economic policy. She was also a member of a World Bank Finance Research Project in 2010 that applies the new analytical framework of Nobel laureate Douglas North on limited access orders in developing countries. Previously, she was a political risk consultant in London, focusing on South Asia and a senior financial journalist based in India, with 10 years of experience covering policy, infrastructure, and metallic commodities. Thank you both so much for joining us today. What an absolute pleasure. I am so excited to delve into our topic today. A lot of our audience may have seen the hashtag NSARS movement. It's been trending on social media. It's been huge. We've seen it all around us. 
and it is truly a really big deal. So today we're going to talk about anti-corruption because SARS, um, many of you may know, many of you may not, was created as an anti-corruption unit. So we're talking about anti-corruption and the interplay of that with SARS on the ground in Nigeria, how that impacts human rights um, at a more I would say a upper higher level. So we're looking at policy, legislation. We're looking at the people who do this work in terms of research um, and teaching. And so this is a really exciting discussion to have. Part two of our Nigeria series will include um, an interview with an activist on the ground. So let's just get into it. Pallavi and Jackie, can you tell us a little bit more about your research? So what you do, what are anti-corruption efforts and what anti-corruption efforts you work on. Hi, thank you very much indeed for um, inviting us to take part in this. Um, you've just leveled about three questions all at once. <laughs> so, so I'll do my best to, um, to, to sort of focus on, on some of those for you. So one of the, the questions that you asked there was um, about um, my anti-corruption research. So we've been very fortunate to be funded under the GI Anti-Corruption Evidence Programme, that's Global Integrity. And as part of that programme, I've been leading on a project that has been looking at how greater knowledge of beneficial ownership may help the authorities in Nigeria in recovering the proceeds of corruption. So can you talk a little bit more about how that process works, recovering the proceeds of corruption? When we're talking about the proceeds of corruption, um, you've almost got to go backwards in terms of, of the discussion and start, I think, perhaps a little bit further down the line. So about why is it that corruption is a particular problem um, within Nigeria? Um, what the structures are that in, are in place in Nigeria to deal with corruption, and perhaps also around why those structures that are in place are perhaps not working as effectively as they should. And I know Pallavi might have some, some, some points to, to raise on that, but if I just preface it all by um, sort of talking a little bit perhaps about giving you some context. So in 2016, the Cameron government in the UK hosted a major anti-corruption conference. And as part of that conference, Nigeria declared that it would undertake a range of, um, of um, well, it committed to a range of, of um, actions, specifically around um, combating corruption, and those actions included some that were relevant to money laundering. And under interest to our project were four in particular, um, one of which was around opening up or creating a public register of beneficial ownership. Another one was around promoting public-private partnerships um, to enable a group of not only um, civil society, but also the government regulators, the financial sector to better share information uh, in a way that would help the um, authorities in their anti-corruption efforts. The third strand was around asset recovery as part of that and um, the efforts therein to, um, to deal with, well, everybody's aware of the very high profile cases of, of corruption that have happened over the years. And a key part of that 
was around introducing legislation um, on asset recovery, which is still in process, um, and focusing perhaps more on some of the tools that are more commonly used elsewhere around non-conviction um, asset recovery and unexplained wealth orders. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more about any of those dimensions, but Pallavi may like to come in as well. I'd just like to um, ask you, what exactly is meant by beneficial ownership, just for our audience? Yeah, thank you. And that's a really good question, Muna. Um, so beneficial ownership is, um, it refers to the, the natural person who ultimately has control of any legal arrangements. Um, so it's who ultimately controls an asset, and very often, ownership can be hidden within legal structures. So um, a company, for example, would talk about the directors and name those directors. But those directors, are um, they hold an executive post. They may not actually be the, the controlling mind of a particular company. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that was a, a great and simplified way. So our, I hope our audience sort of understood what that means. But yeah, and I also wanted to ask a little bit about asset recovery. So by legislation and asset recovery, could we go into a little bit more detail on what that is and what type of legislation we're looking at? So most countries have some for, form of asset recovery legislation. In the UK, we have something called the Proceeds of Crime Act. It provides the tools for the investigating authorities, the prosecuting authorities, to um present to a court evidence around where assets have been identified as being the proceeds of criminal activity. So you could be talking about houses, yachts, um, jewellery, cars, anything really that, that people may acquire with um, funds that they have not legally earned. Um, Jackie, with regards to beneficial ownership that you mentioned earlier on, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the ownership structures in Nigeria. And there is a prevalence of bribery, especially in Nigeria, as we know. So maybe how ownership structures could relate to these events that have been occurring. Th that's That's very interesting. So when we talk about ownership structures, we talk about how assets are basically identified and recorded. And a lot of international attention has been placed recently on the ownership of companies and um, the fact that if you can provide access to um, company registers, that that information is helpful. Um, and also if you you can find out who owns land or property. So those two areas are really important. One of the challenges for Nigeria is that the land registry is sometimes not recorded or it's paper-based or um, it's just not up to date because people choose not to, to update registry records. Um, and then ownership structures um, so the Corporate Affairs Commission has been most recently able now, because of the, um, the Companies and Allied Matters Act that has just been passed through Parliament um, 2020, 
has now in, provided them with the legislative basis to um, to create a register of companies. Um, now, sorry, your question was in two parts because you talked about ownership structures. So that's more about um, the ownership of, of and how ownership is recorded on, on companies. Um, but you then asked me about bribery, I think. Is that correct? Yeah. So... So why is bribery so prevalent? Um, and it, that's a really good question. Most people are, for the most, most part, law-abiding, but not everybody is. And if you think you can get around systems and procedures and controls, some people choose to do that. And if the prosecuting authorities are not given the correct tools or indeed the resources to be able to prosecute effectively cases where people have um, colluded, bribed, committed fraud, if that publicly is seen as not, uh, so somebody is seen as getting away with it, I think it then creates an environment where others think that they can do the same. Um, so really, um, why, why is bribery so prevalent? I probably can't answer that within um because i'm you know i don't live in nigeria but my understanding would be that it doesn't help if those that are committing it are getting away with it and one of the the key problems i think for the prosecutors is that there is overlapping um, powers of the agencies so resources are spread thinly and uh, another dimension is that cases that are brought to court can, can be delayed for many years. And there has been a lot of interest, public interest, on um, why that is the case. So there, is, there was a piece of legislation brought in 2015 called the Administration of Criminal Justice Act that was supposed to stop um, these delaying tactics that meant that cases were not concluded. And when I'm talking about delaying, I mean, some cases have been going on eight, 12 years. So, and with so many delays, and I guess if you have enough money, you can just bring in the best lawyers and, and um, come up with all sorts of reasons why the cases don't get through. Actually, that you bring across an excellent point, especially when it comes to the SARS movement, because you talked about how uh, there's this culture of people getting away with it and it, it kind of reinforces it almost like a cycle. So currently, President Buhari has dismantled the SARS movement in Nigeria. However, the reason for the protests mainly is that they have not fired those involved in the movement nor prosecuted them despite their crimes. So how do you feel about this matter? If you could comment or maybe I could direct this question to uh, Pallavi. Thank you, Nima. Thank you. And, and thank you, Muna. And uh, I echo Jackie. Thank you very much for having us, uh, you know, on your podcast. It's it's always great to interact with uh, with young minds. We're not all in classrooms right now. So it's absolutely fantastic to have you across on the other side of the screen and, and having this conversation. And of course, this is a very, very relevant topic. It's, it's uh, you know, NSARS and SARS is something that defines 
uh, Nigerian politics right now. Uh, the work that we do in 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 uh, you know in a very broad way, uh, the work that we do in the Anti-Corruption Evidence Consortium is fairly related to the kinds of protests and the structural reasons why the protests are taking place around around the NSARS movement. And a lot of the work that Jackie and we do is also uh, also complementary. And just to give you a very brief introduction about the uh, Anti-Corruption Evidence Consortium, there are two halves of the consortium. One half is the Global Integrity ACE Consortium. The other half is the SOAS University of London uh, headed ACE Consortium. And it is funded by UK aid, the UK government, or uh, the FCDO, which is the Foreign Commonwealth uh, and Development Office of the UK government. And uh, I belong to the uh, SOAS ACE part of the consortium. Jackie's explained the kind of work that she does. What is the kind of work that we do at SOAS ACE? Now, uh, as, as Muna pointed out, we work across Bangladesh, Tanzania, Nigeria, but we're also, uh, we also have very interesting projects in Pakistan, in Indonesia, in Malawi, in Lebanon, all of which actually focus on one very critical aspect. How do we make anti-corruption real? You know, not just something that sounds very good on paper, not just something that that's a good tagline. What do we mean by real anti-corruption? And here we actually mean evidence-based research, very strong evidence-based research, which informs policy on anti-corruption in a manner that makes anti-corruption policy both feasible as well as impactful. And that's really the sweet spot for a lot of the work that we do in SOSAs. If you don't have something that's feasible, you're going to have a lot of disappointed people on the ground and you don't have something that's impactful, then there's no point in doing something feasible. So it might sound simple, but we actually have our work cut out for us and it can be quite difficult finding that that sweet spot of feasible and impactful across the three countries that we primarily work in. And I, um, as you explained, Muna, uh, do have primary responsibility for Nigeria. It's not the easiest of context to work in, but you'd be surprised uh, to find out that we do actually have a few very good credible examples of that feasible and impactful sweet spot where you can you can actually create policy that makes anti-corruption real. So that's that that really is uh, our headline. So we work at a level of what uh, in academic parlance would be called the macro-political economy. Now, what do we mean by the macro-political economy? It's three very large words. It's essentially the level at which politics and economics meet at a larger level, where you know we talk about the elites, we talk about the parliaments, we talk about the executive, uh, we talk about the le- legislative processes. Now, that's the formal process. Well, we all know, and it's not just limited to Nigeria, even here in the UK, we know that there is an informal process. We know, for instance, in Parliament right here in London, there is a lobby and a lot of policymaking actually happens in the lobby that then informs policy, formal policymaking. And that is actually magnified on a very large scale in countries like Nigeria, Tanzania, Bangladesh all of Africa and, and Asia, developing nations, essentially. So we, uh, uh, we we look at the interplay of that formal power structure and the informal power structure to then see what kind of policy actually fits in that context. And most countries will have very similar, you know, lots of similarities in the formal power structure. You know, they could have uh, parliaments, they could have a particular kind of judicial uh, uh, reform, common law, 
But the informality is very different in Nigeria uh, from what it is in Bangladesh and what it is in northern Nigeria is very different in southern Nigeria, the informality aspect of it. So that has to be studied very closely. That's a lot of the work that informs us. When we do the final policy research, which is, let's say, well, how does that macro political economy or that large scale interaction of politics and economics, how does that affect the electricity sector in Nigeria? You know, electricity is is a, a much you know it's 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 something that excises a lot of Nigerians very very correctly. It's um, you know a country of two hundred million uh, people, but it still produces about four thousand megawatts of electricity, which is nothing for a country of that size. What went wrong with the privatization? Lots of reforms have been tried, but what can be feasibly tried, which is also impactful. So you you cannot do that study without looking at the larger picture, and then we drill down. So that's the kind of work uh, that we are doing. And the NSARS movement actually dovetails very, very unfortunately and interestingly into the larger uh, political e- economy picture um, of, of Nigeria. And you can almost think of NSARS as a kind of proxy for what is wrong with Nigeria, the aspirations of, of, the, of the Nigerian youth, really. And um, you know, how, how did, you know, what, what is SARS? It's for a lot of people who are not familiar with Nigeria. And given that we are in a pandemic right now, I think it's another virus, but that's absolutely not what SARS is. SARS is the special anti-robbery squad, which was begun in, technically in, in 1992. And its origin, you know, was was interesting. It was it was a it was a sort of innovative uh, security uh, uh, sort of apparatus at that point in time. It was established uh, to kind of take um, char- or investigate and and mitigate the, the, the kinds of kidnappings, the kinds of robberies, armed robberies that were taking place in Nigeria at the time in 1992, when it was still a, a military regime. Um, for 10 years, SARS only operated out of Lagos. Then in 2002, it spread to all the 36 provinces, states, as well as uh, the federal capital territory. And um, what marked SARS was a very high level of opacity. And, it, you know, it, it's almost mirrored by the fact that uh, SARS personnel were allowed to move around without uniforms in unmarked vehicles. Now, at the time that it was begun in, in the early 1990s, this might have seemed like a good idea because you didn't you wanted to surprise bandits or robbers by coming in unmarked vehicles. But over time, it morphed into an agency where obesity became uh, the sort of um, uh, calling card rather than, in a manner of speaking, uh, legitimacy or indeed enforcement of, of uh, rules that were really required to be enforced. This, there is a lot of uh, you know, controversy about uh, the kind of uh, uh, investigation or operations that it ran on the ground. You will find a lot of Nigerian activists talking about SARS being extremely corrupt, especially in the manner of the extra legal proceedings uh, that SARS actually undertakes. So, so in that sense, uh, our work will look at what are the drivers of, of uh, a unit like SARS being set up? And then is there any feasible, implementable policy that can actually address uh, the problems that we see with SARS? And you, you talked about it being disbanded. You talked about um, the government uh, redeploying some of those members. And yes, there is bound to be suspicion because uh, if you're redeploying the same members without any kind of investigation or prosecution, then you do have uh, you know, a problem of trust, a credibility deficit, and the government really does desperately need to address that currently in Nigeria. I'm going to stop here and wait and see if you have any questions. Great. So, Pallavi, you mentioned some very interesting points, and I would like to you know, focus specifically on Nigeria and talk about 
the political economy. So what are the traits of the Nigerian political economy that make it so unique? And to, you know, delve into a little bit more about those formal and informal structures. So if you could sort of help our audience kind of understand what makes Nigeria such a unique situation. Right. So as a developing country, Nigeria is probably shares, not probably, does share a lot of uh, very similar features with other developing countries, which is the very high level of uh, informality, uh, you know, both in terms of the politics that goes on, but also in terms of the economic activity. And I know Jackie would probably have more uh, to talk to this uh, about uh, later in the podcast. But the, the, the defining feature of Nigerians polit- Nigeria's political economy is that despite having a per capita income that's high for its level of development, its oil wealth has basically meant that it has a very, very undiversified economy. So whether it's the politics or the economics of the country, it largely depends on how this oil wealth is shared. Now, uh, most people tend to tend to sort of uh, link Nigeria and, and its oil wealth with a lot of violence, with a lot of instability. And, and it's true that, um, you know, the oil wealth it has led to highly insecure politics, um, not just in in the South-South, where most of the oil is found, but also in Abuja, where how you actually distribute the oil, uh, not just formally, but but even informally. And what what do I mean by informally? This is not something that's just uh, limited to Nigeria. It's just that because in Nigeria, the oil wealth is so vast that it tends to get magnified. The informal is essentially you know, some means of political capture. It's not limited to a particular kind of political regime. It can happen in a military dictatorship. It can happen in a one-party state. It can happen in a democracy. And and frankly, Nigeria is quite a mature democracy now. Its democracy has withstood. It's resilient. It's robust, despite the politics around oil. But the politics around oil is the primary politics uh, um, in that country right now. So a lot of to put it very bluntly, the spoils from uh, the income that's made from the oil resources are redistributed in a certain manner across political elites, around which there, there is a lot of contestation. Now, in a in a, a poor country, if you have access to a, a resource that can make you potentially very powerful, there is going to be a lot of distributive conflict around that. But let's not also forget, and this is something that a lot of people who study oil-rich countries and certainly Nigeria tend to miss, is that this redistribution of the oil resources also makes um, a sort of live and let live kind of arrangement very possible in that country. So whether it's been a military regime or or whether it's been around uh, uh, democracy since 1999, there have been various mechanisms of distributing this resource uh, not just across the elites. It's just not been across a very high level of elites, but it sort of seeps down, you know, to, to people who, let's say, could be part of um, what are called artisanal oil refineries in the country, which is actually a decriminalized way of saying illegal oil refineries. But some of our work in the Niger Delta, in the South South, and the Niger Delta is where most of the oil is found, uh, actually finds that, you know, because you have big oil capturing a lot of the resources and genuinely uh, a lot of uh, the gains from from, uh, oil uh, exploration and refining and marketing and exporting doesn't reach the local communities within whose lands that oil is found, there definitely is theft, there definitely is smuggling, and you do have almost small cottage, and therefore the word artisanal, cottage industries which refine this oil and supply to the local community, provides livelihoods, 
provides access to oil resources that otherwise wouldn't be available. So that's what I mean by the sort of live and let live, the redistributive nature of oil, which is not to say that criminal elements aren't involved. You have almost a warlord economy. You used to have a warlord economy until even two, three years ago in the Niger Delta. And that's that's absolutely there. So, you know, just in I'm simplifying a very, very complicated story, but you've probably understood just how deeply intertwined these processes are, the formal and the informal, uh, uh, you know, what in a manner of speaking is criminal and what in a manner of speaking is actually livelihood orienting. So this is the deep, complex political economy of Nigeria. And throw in the fact now that whether it's been because of the pandemic or because uh, the world is more and more gearing up towards non-fossil uh, uh, sources of, of energy, uh, Nigeria is actually going to be one of the countries most affected by the slowdown. It's not just because of the economy, uh, you know, pandemic-related slowdown, but globally, we are seeing a pivot uh, towards non-oil oil resources. And we still don't know what kind of impact that's going to have on the sort of power sharing and resource sharing that goes on in the Nigerian economy because of this. We certainly do know that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty and uncertainty can in many, uh, at, at many instances, lead to a lot of violence. But we do know that this is both a time for good change because this is an opportunity for Nigeria to actually move away from an oil-based economy, but also means that we could see a lot of uncertainty uh, evolving from the current political economy structure. Palavi's raised um, a number of really interesting issues there, um, particularly around um, the scale of the informal sector and the dominance of oil. And those structural characteristics, I think, are, are really challenging for the authorities in Nigeria. Whatever they try to do, um, that that structure is has... Is, has been there for some time, and although it provides opportunity, as oil prices have have dropped, um, the the vulnerability of the government to its reliance on oil has become very apparent. Things like the fact that depending on on oil price will depend on how much government revenue is available for redistribution to support all sorts of programs, um, and that's not a sustainable. Um, way to operate, really. When I first looked at um, macro data, so when we started our project, the natural place to look for me was to get as much of the macro level data on Nigeria. And I was really surprised to find that I couldn't find data. (laughs) And, And what I could find was very out of date. But one of the sources of data that I could find was the um, uh, data on imports and exports. And I was really surprised at the dominance of oil in terms of, of its role and that the the country exports crude, but then re-imports refined. So it's it's a real two-way process there. So that dominance on of oil is something that until and unless that is addressed, there, there are going to be perpetual um, problems in terms of government revenue. Um, the, the low compliance rate with the tax regime is quite striking. So for, for the scale of the economy, I think the tax compliance rate is something like the tax to GDP ratio is something like 4, 4.9%. And you compare that with a similar 
um, economy. I think the comparison that's that's sometimes used is South Africa, where the the uh, tax take to GDP is something more like um, 23, 24%. So there's clearly untapped potential there. Uh, the other side of that informality is around um, the, the size of the, the cash and the cash economy. And that is an, another area, and I understand the challenges for, for the Nigerian authorities because of the prevalence of cash in large parts of, of the, the country where the internet is not there, so financial transactions are by definition hindered. But if you look at the, the controls that are put in place, so the, the international frameworks against money laundering by the Financial Action Task Force, FATF, most of that the controls work on the prevalence that the gatekeepers are the financial system. And where monies go into the financial system, that's how they are moved internationally. In Nigeria, yes, that does happen, but there is also the wide-scale movement of cash out of the country, uh, quite legally. So one of the controls that was put in place was currency declarations, and you can legally declare and have to amounts more than greater than um, 10,000 US dollars to take out. But this means that huge amounts are just walking <laughs> legally out of the country and, and cash is, is exiting. So being able to to move towards um, more formal structures and more recognised structures will be very important for, for the future. But one of the, the little points I think that, that needs to be reflected back up to the international agencies is that they shouldn't make assumptions about how things are operating on the ground. So you can put the framework in, you can put all the legislation in, but it doesn't mean it's operating and so you can tick the boxes, but if you're not resourcing, it's not operating effectively. But that reflecting back is it also important. So speaking of international frameworks, you mentioned that Nigeria's uh, primary focus on exports is crude oil. Um, and a lot of the times in many African nations, we see these international bodies like the IMF actually limiting these countries from diversifying their economies. So how do you think Nigeria could potentially diversify its economy? How is that working? Um, and why, why is it such a cash-based economy? What is the main, what is the reason for that? Well, I wasn't quite sure what, what you meant by the MF preventing a country from doing something. So certain loans and the conditions sort of state that you have to be a primary export of one main commodity. And, you know, many countries in the past have attempted to diversify and it hasn't necessarily been successful. Um, so, Muna, you're right that there, uh, you know, there do exist conditionalities with IMF aid. But I think over the last 10, 15 years, that has not been the case. It was definitely a case when Africa was seeing a wave of structural adjustment programs in the 1980s. And there's absolutely no doubt about that, that Nigeria included. A lot of the economies were decimated because they had to, uh, you know, dismantle currency controls. They they saw, uh, uh, you know, huge uh, uh, you know, trade deficits, and uh, they became, uh, they, they were sort of more dependent on, on being primary exporters. There's absolutely no doubt about that. You know, for instance, it did affect Nigeria's pharmaceutical industry quite a bit, but that does not exist now. 
I do think that uh, the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank especially, have learned from from those very awful years of the 1980s, where they were they certainly were responsible for um, putting Niger- uh, for African economies in a spot. Uh, since then, there have there have been more levers of control. Um, a lot of these countries uh, are are exempt from certain WTO norms. You know, they can actually lay claim to what the WTO says, special and differential rights as being, uh, uh, you know, poorer countries, or low income countries. Um, so it's it's not that they do not have the leverage to to diversify. In Nigeria's case, you know, as Jackie was saying, it's just the primacy. Whether you look at look at the formal structure or the informal structure of oil in the economy. If you took away oil from both the formal and informal structures, there would be very, very little left with which to take the country forward. Now, at the peripheries, things have happened in Nigeria. Nigeria is an incredibly dynamic, incredibly entrepreneurial place to anybody who's been there. And a lot of us have actually been there and worked there. Uh, There is stuff happening at the peripheries. Nigerian conglomerates have diversified. What has not been forthcoming, because most regimes have been short-sighted about it, what has not been forthcoming is industrial policy. Or whatever industrial policy has existed has been in what we call uh, a sort of political economy parlance, been captured. That is, others have taken advantage of it, bent the formal rules. Again, as Jackie said, you know, the formal rule is great. I take it, you know, you have these tariff barriers, you have subsidies, banks are giving you money. That should, in theory, you know, help you put up a factory. But where has the money gone? Has the factory come up? If the factory has come up, has it provided employment? You know, there's a very long uh, uh, line, if you want, between these two dots. And that doesn't tend to happen for various structural reasons of underdevelopment. And this is essentially, you know, you you can kind of uh, explain it right back and fold it in into the informal structure of that economy because it's a chicken and egg situation. Because the economy is so informal, informal processes take primacy and the formal process is there on paper, but you can't link up to it. Now, till you incrementally make that informal, you, you take segments of the economy, you take fertilizer, you take uh, cement, you take uh, the electricity sector, you take the SME sector, slowly start formalizing them without trying to do big bang reforms, which are extremely ambitious in the current political climate in Nigeria. If you incrementally start then joining the dots, it becomes much easier because you have intermediate dots between this, this dot of formal and that dot of informal, and then you start joining up the dots in the formal economy, that's when you get a broad-based productive economy, which produces the tax take required for development. As Jackie was saying, there's just not enough taxation. Its levels of tax-to-GDP ratio are abysmal, and I hate to say it, fan though I am, of a lot of things Nigerian. This just shouldn't happen. Even with the oil wealth, where the royalties are concerned, income tax, direct taxes, we won't even talk about that. But the only way to increase your tax base is to formalize. But you cannot do it in a big bang manner, not in the kind of political economy context that we have, if that makes sense. Um, Pallavi, uh, you mentioned that you're very passionate about the ideas of impact and practical solutions. So since you actually brought this up a bit more, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about what are the steps forward from here? You talked about small steps in the informal economy. So what made this mean exactly? Sure. 
Um, so, so let me take, for example, uh, our work in the electricity sector. Now, Nigeria started off with some of the biggest bank privatization reforms ever across the African subcontinent around 2012 and 2013. It had an entirely state-run electricity sector from what is called um, generation, where you generate this electricity, transmit, where you have those big, you know, some of you might have seen those big towers, which transmit electricity from place to place, and then the distribution sector, which brings electricity right outside your household and then brings it into your living room. So you have three components of the electricity sector, generation, transmission, distribution. All three were state-owned. Uh, the decision was to privatize two parts of it completely, which is the generation part of it, electricity producers, and the distribution part of it, those who would take electricity to your home. The transmission sector, they were in two minds about whether they would privatize it or not. But bear in mind that at the time of privatization, the electricity sector was already a very, very corrupt sector. Uh, it was it was a sector where you could, uh, uh, you know, generate some revenue and some resources. And a lot of the revenue and resources were captured instead of being plowed back into, let's say, bettering the transmission uh, technology, bettering the distribution technology. So Nigeria's electricity sector has two problems. It's very corrupt and it has got age old creaking equipment. So, so you then had a privatization exercise where a lot of people looked at the sector and said, now, this is going to be slightly problematic for us. We have, um, we have a lot of old assets which are not performing well. If I am a genuine private investor, am I looking into that sector and seeing that my investments here will bear fruit? Or do I have to invest even more to get my, uh, my equipment up to speed and then deal with the other political economy considerations? So what happened was genuine private sector in investors who had long years of experience in the sector internationally want bidding. Who bid? People who were very powerfully connected in Nigeria, who had very little truck with the electricity generation sector, but and who were not technically as qualified compared to some of those who had initially shown interest. So now you have a sector where all the private players are politically connected. They know that they can be bailed out. And the electricity sector has been bailed out about three or four times through huge sums of money. And there is no denying that, the fact that they, they do face an uphill task of investment in those assets. But they know that, you know, there's no point in investing right now because the money doesn't exist. As I said in the beginning, there's 4,000 megawatts that's being generated in a country of 200 million people, which means there's tremendous scarcity. And I cannot charge you a tariff when I'm actually not providing you with that product. You see? So one problem is tariffs are low. But if you start increasing tariffs right now, I simply won't pay as a consumer. I will. Here's the interesting thing. I will buy diesel from the smuggled market, from the black market. I will steal electricity from my distributor so that I can run my generator, which runs my small and medium uh, firm, which employs about 20 people. Do you see how we are bringing in corruption even when I don't want to be corrupt? I'd actually much rather have 24 hours of perfect electricity uh, supply and I'll pay for it very happily. But if you're supplying me with five hours of electricity per day, and that is actually statistic that, you know, the Nigerian Bureau of Statistics and the Census of Industry says that it's about five hours of uh, supply to any uh, small and medium sized firm, which is nothing if you want to be profitable and productive. So then I'm going to start becoming corrupt. I'm going to cut deals with my local engineers so that I can be supplied with electricity. I'm going to buy smuggled diesel on the black market because I don't have uh, access to electricity. I'm being forced to, to uh, into corruption. So we need to make a distinction between people who cheat because they want to and can. These are the really powerful people. And 
people disconnected at the more mass level, you know, people who are out on the, the, the youngsters who are out on the streets protesting about SARS, for instance, uh, these are the people who don't have a choice but to be corrupt. Some consumers and most consumers in Nigeria, residential consumers, don't pay bills. Simply because their whole point is, you're not supplying me with anything. Now, you see the, the vicious cycle that there is. I don't have high tariffs. I don't get billings. My technical capacity is low. I'm not able to produce. People are just no longer willing to invest in that, in that particular sector right now. But that doesn't mean that you forget the sector. You know, the beating heart of Nigerian manufacturing is in the southeastern part uh, of Nigeria in, in towns like uh, Abba, or, uh, Navy and Onitsha. Now, these, these were SME-rich parts of Nigeria, which used to, at one point of time, uh, export to Ghana, export to Togo. These have become completely uncompetitive now, and this is where our electricity sector research actually took place. I'm going to uh, cut a complicated show, story short again. Uh, and most of these uh, uh, SME owners who used to be profitable once now say that the reason why we are not is because we don't have electricity. It's not corruption of the larger kind. It's not finance. Just give me power to run my shifts twice a day. Can I have 16 hours of power uninterrupted? It's not happening. So what we then then did was we saw we saw that these were productive people who had the capacity to be productive, who did not want to be rule-breaking, but were rule-breaking because they didn't have a choice. Then we look to the other side, the supply side. Well, what is the supply side, which is when you are supplying electricity? What, what, what are the natures, you know, the nature of the links over there? And we realize that you have the technology of compressed natural gas. You even have policy space where the government actually says, well, if you're not getting electricity, you can set up a small power plant. You can set up an independent distribution unit that only supplies to your SME cluster. And most SMEs across the world are, are based in clusters because if you're in a cluster, you actually are becoming more productive. You share resources, you share water. It's called the cluster effect or scale economies in, in, in economics. So they're based in clusters. You can actually set up, so geographically it's easy. You set up a small power plant. You then supply electricity through compressed natural gas. That, that technology exists. And we established the fact that these SME owners would pay for their electricity legally because they would actually end up paying far less than what they're paying through corruption. We don't often compute the costs of corruption, right? Of, of that diesel that I'm smug buying, which is smuggled, of, of stealing electricity from the line, bribing an engineer. Those are operating costs, which we don't take in. So their cost of production is higher. They're no longer able to export. So it was really a question of looking at that large picture of the what we call the national grid. Now that's not that needs the World Bank to come in and give them equipment or Siemens coming in and working and improving technology. That's a long-term program. What happens in the short term? So then you break it up and you take a step down and you see, well, there are these pockets of opportunity, if you want, where you can actually improve things. So that's the kind of uh, uh, you know work that I'm talking about. Um, I'm just, thank you so much for answering that question. I'm just going to redirect it to the current situation that is undergoing on in Nigeria. So it seems as if though there has been a compromise in the social contract between the government and the people, because the people often give up their rights to the government for safety and security, but the government is not providing as such. And it seems as if though there is a similar case, even in the case of electricity that you mentioned earlier on. So when the when there is such a lack of rights or compromise, what can the people do or what can we do as listeners um, watching what is going on? Because it, it almost feels as if there, there is a bit of a disconnect from where we are sitting. 
I would I would sort of take it back to um, accountability for me and transparency, and all for example, all agencies are required to present um, annual report and accounts to the National Assembly, and none of them do that. And just a small thing like that, making sure that um, reports are actually produced, that they contain data, and that that data is put into the public domain for debate. That's that's one step in the right direction. How do we how do we encourage agencies to do that? Are there any sort of ideas about incentivizing that? How how do we encourage greater transparency? We shouldn't have to incentivize it. It should it should be part of the contract. I mean, you you're an agency. You are funded by government. Um, you have a, a a responsibility around accountability. So I suppose. You could you could cut off funding, I, I suppose, if you if you were really harsh about it. But um, from our research, one of the things that was shared with us was when I couldn't find any data, I was asking about why why there was a lack of data, and this seems to come back to agencies being feeling some degree of vulnerability, and feeling that if they do share, that somehow or other they will be criticised. And I, I'm not sure why that is the case, but that was something that that um, seems to be an inhibitor that that people feel that by opening up their act, activity to public scrutiny, that in some way um, they will be found to be deficient. Now that may link to what Pallavi's been saying in that perhaps some of them have been deficient because they have been able to hide behind that. Yes, I, I completely agree with Jackie over there. I mean. Uh, you know, we tend to look at data in Western economies as a sort of mechanistic, instrumentalized tool. In developing economies, data is actually political. It is here too. But the, the levels and the quality, the, the qualitative difference uh, matters. Let's say in Nigeria, if uh, uh, you were to open up to scrutiny all the books, as, as Jackie says, and that's, you know, Exactly as she said, it shouldn't be about incentivizing. It's 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 par for course. You'd expect a public corporation to open up data, but if the resources are being channeled elsewhere where it shouldn't go, you wouldn't want to make that transparent. You would want to hide behind opacity, and that's the reason, for instance, uh, the Niger the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation (NNPC). Uh, you know there has been a lot of effort. Uh, on, on the part of international observers to push them towards opening up their books. And some of it has happened, one, one has to say. You know, they are presenting it. But then they go to the Nigerian Assembly, NAS, and then the, it sits in the NAS and nobody, no representative wants to do anything much about it. So so you have to jump a lot of hoops. It's not just about NNPC opening up the books. There's another hoop that you have to jump through. So it's it's a, it's a sort of complex chain there. And, you know, since we are are talking about human rights, and that's what, you know, the, the whole uh, issue with SARS is equally, you know, corruption is, and, you know, it leads to an infringement of some certain very basic human rights, like the opportunity for, uh, you know, equitable growth, like the opportunity for decent work. And that's actually SDG 8 that, uh, you know, one just referred to. So it's, it's very intrinsically linked to livelihoods safe, secure livelihoods. And that's that's not happening. So corruption does become a quality of life issue. But when you take to the streets, when, when the water really gets above your head, you see economic opportunities not arising, you see your public services not delivering, you don't see democracy delivering as it's meant to, then it becomes an incendiary co- you know, combination. You take to the streets then, 
The problem is you, as a protester, are also expecting benchmarks that are difficult to uphold even in Western countries. I mean, even in the US and the UK, we are now having debates about the nature of democracy and does democracy deliver. These are countries where the economy is about 100% formal. In countries where the economy is so informal, where you do have informal political linkages, it doesn't matter if you're elected to to the National Assembly or not. If you know somebody powerful enough, you're powerful. You know, that's the kind of very shorthand transaction that I'm talking about. Democracy is not going to deliver in the manner that we think it should deliver. And that's, that's, a, that's an assumption that a lot of standard anti-corruption makes. Now, that's an absolutely required benchmark. We need to look up to that. But it's not going to be easy to reach that, given the context that Jackie and I have have just been discussing. So you can go out onto the streets, but you will be disappointed. And that's the reason why we see a lot of fatigue around anti-corruption in a lot of developing countries today, because you've, you've gone out and protested. Nothing's really happened on the ground. Nothing's changed. And, you know, it's it's funny this this uh, protest against SARS hasn't just started in 2019. There was a big protest in 2017. There have been protests in, you know, across the years. Amnesty has, has written reports on it. There have been UN rapporteur reports on brutality uh, written against SARS and, you know, torture by SARS units going back into the early 2000s. Nothing's changed. What's different here, of course, is that it's taken the security apparatus by surprise. Nobody was expecting this. And you have it in the backdrop of the pandemic of really low economic growth and extremely, extremely high youth unemployment. Right. But this is where we are trying to link our work, whether it's global integrity and so as is to this idea of developmental anti-corruption. One is on the one hand, you make your formal structures important and strong. That's the work Jackie is doing, let's say. On the other hand, we actually look at sectoral examples like the SMEs that we talked about in the electricity sector. That's much more tractable. That's much more feasible. Now, if I say reform police, reform the Nigerian police force, really? If I say reform the Economic Financial Crime Commission, you know, the EFCC, which is the premier anti-corruption agency in, in Nigeria, most of its high level operatives are from the Nigerian police force. What kind, you know, it's it's a sort of revolving door. What kind of credibility would that have as an anti-corruption agency? What what could you do with an anti-corruption agency like the FCC, which is something that the UK government has been doing, is increase its forensic capabilities. It has, uh, you know, a Nigerian financial intelligence unit, the NFIU, increase its uh, ability to, to investigate money going out. But at the political level, it's going to be difficult to change the basic incentive structure. Then you go down below the radar, literally. You go below the radar, you look at pockets of capability where insiders won't be corrupt because it's in their interest to not be corrupt. And then, as I said earlier, you start joining the dots. So it doesn't sound very exciting. It's what we call strategic realism or radical incrementalism. And, it, you know, there's, a, there's an excellent policy brief on our website written by Mushtaq Khan, who re- leads the SOAS Consortium. It doesn't sound very uh, appealing to, to uh, a young person in Nigeria who's not been born in the military regime. And you're really asking her to say, tamp down, you know, don't be so enthusiastic. The protest isn't going anywhere. The protest will go somewhere, but you have to complement it with very solid uh, moves to to make the formal structure more transparent, as well as to make the sectoral economic story more productive. So it, it has to work together. That's what I meant. So how can a young Nigerian person listening to this, frustrated, protesting in the street, what are those? What are the practical ways 
um, in which they can sort of help out in terms of policy? What can they do practically? Not an easy question. Uh, absolutely not, a, not an easy question. If you are a Nigerian youth listening to this, you're probably getting very frustrated because of what's happening on the ground. But protests are definitely an excellent way to signal to the establishment that something needs to change. But it's a two-way street. You know, the establishment also has to meet you halfway. We can already see pushback happening from the establishment in Nigeria. Uh, like most developing countries, is complicated. Nigeria is even more complicated. You actually now have another hashtag trending from the north of Nigeria, which says Secure Nigeria, which is essentially about we have so much insecurity. Uh, we can't just talk about disbanding the police force. And, you know, there is I'm not even going into where and how that hashtag started trending, but it's you know, the north of Nigeria has seen a lot of security-related threats. It's, the youth there are, are definitely impacted by it. So the more practical areas would be to push the government into more avenues for job creation. The more we say, you know, reform the Anti-Corruption Commission, uh, make sure that people are prosecuted, the more the government is going to put all of this on the back burner for now. Because these are uncomfortable questions for the government. Even the government has constraints on itself. It might want to. There would be definitely sections in the government, even the vice president in 2018 said, you know, SARS uh, needs to be taken another look at. So it's not that everybody in the government or the entire apparatus is somehow rotten and leaking. No, it's not easy to govern a country like Nigeria. So it won't be easy for even somebody with political will, as we say, to come and change things overnight. But there are things that can be delivered. So demand those tractable things. There are no relevant skills training programs in Nigeria. If the country wants to rebase away from oil, there are no skills. So I, I want to become a you know, mechanic. I want to set up a car plant or a motorcycle assembly plant. I have it informally. I work in Navy and Onitsha and I do it because I'm learning on the job. But there's nothing that's actually training me for it. Look for job creation opportunities. Pressurize the government on that. That's where we want to take our research in. There are other avenues, but that's where we come from. Pallavi, you spoke about human rights and the quality of living in Nigeria. So I was wondering, we, today we speak in the context of a pandemic. So what does a pandemic do to a crisis such as SARS in Nigeria currently? Because there has so President Buhari has announced a two-week lockdown of major cities and countries such as UK, US and China are suggesting that this is almost a cover to suppress, you know, uh, the political protest of sorts. But how does COVID-19 change the dynamic of this crisis? I, so not being an epidemiologist based in Nigeria, I think it would be unfair on me to comment on whether the lockdown is necessary or not. There's no doubt that the country is facing, or Africa indeed, is facing a resurgence. So some measure has to be taken to socially distance. But it, to, in answer to your question of what does a pandemic do to something like SARS, to my mind, it's both uh, an opportunity and, uh, you know, a, a moment of great uncertainty. But I think it's an, it's an opportunity because... Uh, like I said, the establishment was caught very much off guard. The establishment knows that there is a looming problem because oil is is no longer going to be the mainstay of the economy. And, uh, you know, the, the, the reason why these protests matter is, as we say in economics, it's great signaling. People are really angry. Uh, the youth are, are really angry. And whoever is the establishment in Abuja or in the state capitals knows that this can no longer be taken for granted, whether you're in the north or whether you're in the south. And this has been fairly unifying. Uh, 
you know, even those who are saying secure Nigeria are saying it for the exact same reasons as their, uh, you know, sort of cohort in the South is saying, which is, you know, insecurity and, and extra legal issues are a problem in the country, whether you live in the North or you live in the South. So it's, an, it's a great opportunity to reset the social contract as much as possible, but with a, a sort of healthy dose of practicality, with the realization in mind that not everything that you ask for is is going to be granted, but there are definite areas of strategic opportunity that you can leverage on. Now, that strategic opportunity is something for the youth of Nigeria today to leverage on. They have, you know, the diaspora is excellent. The use of social media is very, very strong in Nigeria. Civil society is extremely strong for everybody who is very pessimistic about Nigeria. I know that working in West, West Africa for so long, Nigerian civil society is actually far more um, dynamic and intrepid than civil society in many parts of South Asia today. Not too many people actually think about that, but it is true, especially Nigerian civil society. And they've been working at it. So this is actually a moment of great opportunity. The strategic leverage has to be thought through better. So speaking of great opportunity, I think that's a wonderful way to end our discussion today. And I'd like to ask you all, what are what is one main point that you would like a listener to get out of this discussion that we had? That's a great uh, way to end. And I would suggest that um, civil society, Pallavi talked um, about how strong that is in Nigeria, is um, encourage that involvement to get involved with um, testing the, the data that is going to be entered onto the um, register of beneficial ownership for companies to um, test the register that's already available and it's online for the extractive industries sector um, and to, to um, question and interrogate that as much as possible and pushing back to ask for further information. So coming back to, to the points I've already made before, for me it's around um, keeping up the pressure on, um, on the agencies to be accountable and to be transparent. So um, again, linked to what I have been saying so far, I think this protest movement across the country is a great opportunity for the youth to actually ask for reforms that anybody in the establishment will not be able to kick into the long grass. Asking for uh, you know reforms which are much more sort of fundamentally political in nature, which asks for certain very large incentives to be to be changed will be difficult for even a well-meaning high-level politician to address. But if you genuinely demand, uh, let's come up with a package for employment, let's come up with a package for skills development, these are much more demands that are tractable, could be delivered better by uh, the political establishment, would work for the youth in town. And it's, it's, it's not easy to put these on the back burner. Thank you. What a fascinating discussion. Thank you, Pallavi. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining us today. We thank you for your time and we thank you for the work that you're doing and we are excited to learn more about it. Um, to all of our listeners, we encourage you to do your research, look up and SARS, look up Nigeria research, you know, beneficiary ownership, research about the economy and research anti-corruption efforts that are going on now. Thank you everyone for listening. My name is Muna Gassim and this was Declarations. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other streaming services.